Welcome to the podcast, Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You'll find Unbecoming on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions for the podcast, please write to us at OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. And if any of what I've been saying resonates with you, I invite you to support the podcast on Patreon. The web address is patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast. Today, the topic is how we other one another. We see someone and think he's not one of us. Of course, us could be defined in almost unlimited ways. It could be us, the country, or us, the male gender, or us, the religion, or us, the white people. The ways in which we make most judgments along these lines are fairly well uh, codified. We tend to include or exclude people on the basis of color, gender, religious identification, and sexual orientation. There are, of course, other aspects. We may decide that someone is just too bad or mean or disruptive or something else that we cannot tolerate. The question then becomes, how willing are we to open the boundaries of our community? I remember seeing a Bible church that's, in in effect, an evangelical church. It had a sign that read, Atheists Welcome. And I always wondered what exactly that was supposed to mean. Just to add a little more spice to that point, the church I was then attending right across the street sometimes was attended by the husband of a parishioner who was a Buddhist monk. That is, the husband, not the parishioner. One day, at a gathering following the service, someone jokingly said, We'll make a Christian out of you yet. To which the priest in charge swiftly responded, No, we won't. You are more than welcome to remain a Buddhist and visit whenever you'd like. We're not trying to convert you. The difference between these two approaches is profound. The first at least implies something like, you're welcome to join us, but we're expecting you to convert to our way of belief. If I've been uncharitable to the Bible church, then I apologize in advance. But I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that the Bible church people aren't likely going to be all that happy with a Buddhist monk attending their church. The second invitation was one simply to attend without any expectation. Now, so far what we've discussed has been pretty mild. But what are we to make of more extreme denunciations of the person or persons we deem to be other than us? Consider the following example. You know, they're starting to realize that they can go around, they can blame us for mass shootings, they can call us this and that, and it just doesn't, it just rolls off our back. Nothing you people say means anything to us. It doesn't mean anything because we know you're full of garbage and everything you say is a lie. And so it just doesn't matter. You, you, can, it, you can say whatever you want. Well, you can't say whatever you want. If you get into defamation, then, then we're going to sue your asses. But... Uh, beyond that, if you want to, you know, whatever, whatever insinuations, insults, whatever labels you want to put, just doesn't have any effect. As you can hear, there's quite a lot going on in this statement. Let's try and unpack it. So Walsh says, nothing you say means anything to us because we know you are full of garbage 
and everything you say is a lie. I'm trying to imagine what it could mean to say that everything someone says is a lie. Is that even possible? Really? Could there really be people who are so entirely consistent that 100% of the time they only tell lies? That strains credibility. It's not as complicated as the liar's paradox. Uh, that's a whole different story. But it's hard to imagine a human being having such perfect consistency. Now, exactly what it means to say that someone is full of garbage is also not exactly clear. I'm assuming that the thing filled with garbage is the minds of the people who lie all the time, rather than this being an indictment against junk food. Of course, this charge presents somewhat of a problem. If your mind is actually filled with garbage and you speak that garbage, you are only saying what you believe. Saying what you believe is never a lie. It may be incorrect, wildly wrong, but lying involves the intent to deceive. If you truly believe what you're saying, then you can't be lying, even though, again, you can be wrong. Now, perhaps that's not exactly what Walsh means. I think the last part of that statement is the most important part. What those other people have to say, to quote him, has, he says, no effect. In essence, he is saying, we don't care what you think, and we don't take what you say seriously. Now, you might be wondering, who is this guy? The voice you heard is that of Matt Walsh, who has a podcast bearing that name. If you look for Walsh online, you'll probably encounter the term right-wing bigot, relatively quickly, but I want you to know that that's not a term that I've used. His Wikipedia page tells us that he is a right-wing political commentator and that he describes himself as a theocratic fascist. I'm really not sure what that means. Um, I have some inkling, but I, it would be very interesting to find out what theocratic fascist actually means. Now, the Wikipedia page further continues, Walsh is an outspoken opponent of the LGBTQ plus movement, specifically the transgender community, and has promoted the LGBT grooming conspiracy theory on multiple occasions. The New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg associated Walsh's commentary, as well as that of other right-wing commentators, with an increase of anti-LGBT violence in the United States. The Southern Poverty Law Center describes Walsh as one of the peddlers of fear and disinformation about LGBTQ people in the wake of the Club Q mass shooting. The Daily Wire, where his program is, says Matt Walsh is a writer, speaker, author, and one of the religious right's most influential young voices. He is known for boldly tackling the tough subjects and speaking out on faith and culture in a way that connects with his generation and beyond. His Wikipedia page also lists him as a 
practicing Catholic. Now, the manner in which Mr. Walsh speaks would certainly seem to convey authority and certainty on pretty much whatever he seems to be talking about. If you know a little bit, though, about Roman Catholic theology, you'll probably start to have some questions if you listen very closely to what he says. But I'm not so interested here in the content. I'm much more interested in the delivery. People talk about their mums having taught them that it's not so much what you say, but how you say it that counts. If someone is a practicing Catholic, then I assume such a person is familiar with what Jesus says about many things, though here I have in mind the part about loving one's enemies. Did you catch the love in Walsh's voice? Yeah, I, I didn't either. Perhaps practicing Catholic means he's really working hard on that. To be sure, loving one's enemy is an ideal to which we can aspire and even reverence without being all that good at it. But the problem with that theory is that the clip I played is from episode 1067. So he's had over 1,000 episodes to work on loving his enemies. That doesn't seem to be the direction where he's headed. In fact, he seems to be headed in the exact opposite direction. In one of Walsh's blogs, he makes the following claim. My problem with the Satanic Temple after-school program is that it's redundant. The kids are already learning Satanism in public school. You can find that quote on Twitter if you like. My first problem with that statement is that it's hard to know what it means on multiple levels. So first, I've not heard of a single school district that has decided to dedicate themselves to Satanism. I think such announcement would receive very heavy media coverage. So I think you would have heard of it by now. Then there's another point, and that is, it wasn't until 1996 that Anto LaVey founded the Church of Satan in the United States. Before that, there wasn't really any official Satanism. Instead, Satanism is a vague but loaded term that is often leveled against anybody we don't like. In general, I suspect that most people who accuse others of being Satanic don't have any meaningful content in that accusation other than, I don't like people like you or you are evil. But by associating the accused with the devil, the accuser seeks to maintain that the accused is part of some evil project to destroy that which is good. A vague charge like that, of course, is very hard to prove, but it's even harder to disprove, meaning that the onus will usually be on the one charged to clear her name. If someone claims that you're in league with Satan, exactly what kind of evidence could you produce to refute such a claim? I decided to use the title for this episode, Demonizing the Enemy, because it has strongly religious overtones. While examining the slurs that people hurl against others is instructive, we learn the most when we think about those statements from a philosophical or religious point of view. Why does Walsh think that schools are teaching Satanism? Or more to the point, what would it even mean for schools to teach Satanism? I have to confess that I'm not actually persuaded that there is any one 
or anything who is the devil or Satan. I don't think of Satan as an actual figure, though this is not a point about which I want to argue um, and it's not worth talking about. Instead, let me point out that immediately following the quote that I just gave from Twitter, there are a couple of responses. One person replies to Walsh, and all Satanism is, in a nutshell, not caring about others, looking out for number one, and scorning all standing in the way. To which another person replies, no, what you just said is Walsh's philosophy. In other words, the first respondent provides a de definition of Satanism, and the second respondent says that the description fits Walsh. By the way, I think that's not a bad definition of Satanism, since it does effectively invert what Jesus says. Whether that definition fits Walsh, though, is for somebody else to decide. Now, as it turns out, Satan has been around for a long time. He is first found as the figure of the devil in Zoroastrianism, a religion that predates Christianity by at least 600 years, though it may go back even further. Nietzsche claims, and he may be correct in this, that it was Zoroaster who invented the concept of evil. Now, of course, it'd be very difficult to establish any such, such founding, but that's what uh, Nietzsche believes. Zoroastrianism is a religion that bears marked similarities to Christianity and Judaism, probably most likely because it strongly influenced them. Zoroastrians believe that God is one, that there is a Messiah coming, that human beings are free and will be judged after death, that God lives in heaven, and that the devil and the demons live in hell. In early parts of the Hebrew Bible, early as in earlier written, Sheol is described as a place of shadowy existence. Then it morphs into a temporary holding place, with Gehenna becoming the place of fire and punishment. Now, I suspect that Walsh isn't probably concerned so much with these points and probably not very concerned with accuracy. The people he's describing are viewed simply as the enemy. And in case you're wondering if someone like Walsh is a lone voice, it might help to hear that a pastor, his name is Perry Stone, who identifies as a, an evangelical believes that democratic politicians, quote, have demons in them, and that they are, quote, trying to place hexes and curses on Donald Trump. Now, you might think that Walsh, being a self-described Catholic, would want to follow Jesus in loving the enemy. But that isn't the path he's chosen. We'll come back to this point again. But simply because people describe themselves as Christian doesn't make them Christian. Jesus talks about bearing or not bearing fruit is indicative of who one really is. But I believe this. Once you've decided not to take Jesus seriously about loving one's enemies, then the jig is up. You're really not following Jesus. A lot of the other stuff that Jesus says, other religions say too. But this part about loving one's enemies, that's actually the most demanding of Jesus' teachings. I can easily see why people wouldn't want to try and put it into practice. 
The hatred of our enemies can be a great source of satisfaction and solidarity. Note that such hatred usually goes along with thinking such people are terrible, and of course thinking that we are wonderful. Many centuries ago, Christians were accused by the Romans of cannibalism and incest, since they met to share the wine, assumed by some outsiders to be the blood of children, and fellowship, assumed by outsiders to be sex. As far as we know, those charges had no basis in fact. Though they were common enough charges, they were often leveled against various people a group didn't like. It's helpful to put all of these criticisms in a context. In his sweeping and remarkable history titled Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality, John Boswell reminds us that much of the conversation about homosexuality shows that people of varying sexualities have been treated in vastly different ways depending on the time in history. Just in case you're wondering why I've moved to Boswell's work, Walsh makes it clear that he's against, among many, many, many other things, anything to do with the LGBTQ plus community, and especially the transgender community, the T in LGBTQ plus. Boswell's study shows that the times in which homosexuals were treated reasonably well turned out to be exactly the times in which Jews were also treated reasonably well. Here's how he puts it. Most societies, for instance, which freely tolerate religious diversity also accept sexual variation. And the fate of Jews and gay people has been almost identical throughout European history, from early Christian hostility to extermination in concentration camps. The same laws which oppress Jews oppress gay people. The same groups spent on eliminating Jews tried to wipe out homosexuality. The same periods of European history which could not make room for Jewish distinctiveness reacted violently against sexual nonconformity. The same countries which existed on religious uniformity imposed majority standards of sexual conduct. And even the same methods of propaganda were used against Jews and gay people, picturing them as animals bent on the destruction of the children of the majority. Most people are simply unaware that the Nazis treated homosexuals, particularly German homosexuals, exactly as they treated Jews. Both were imprisoned and sent to some of the most horrific concentration camps with the goal of making sure that they were eventually dead. The Nazis had a long list of useless eaters, anti-fascists, blacks, communists, Freemasons, gypsies, the mentally and physically handicapped, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jews, mulattoes, socialists, and various other, as they would put it in German, Untermenschen, subhuman people like the Poles, the Russians, and the Serbs. It was only when I first visited one of the camps, it was Dachau back in 1991, that I learned how many races and conditioned Conditions had been singled out as less than human by the Nazis. In the 1942 pamphlet edited by Heinrich Himmler, titled Der Untermensch, the Subhuman, we read the following. 
Just as the night rises against the day, the light and dark are in eternal conflict. So, too, is the subhuman the greatest enemy of the dominant species on Earth, mankind. The subhuman is a biological creature crafted by nature, which has hands, legs, eyes, and mouth, even the semblance of a brain. Nevertheless, this terrible creature is only a partial human being. Although it has features similar to a human, the subhuman is lower on the spiritual and psychological scale than any animal. Inside of this creature lies wild and unrestrained passions, an incessant need to destroy, filled with the most primitive desires, chaos, and cold-hearted villainy. A subhuman and no more. Not all of those who appear human are in fact so. Woe to him who forgets it. Mulattoes and thin Asian barbarians, gypsies and black-skinned savages all make up this modern underworld of subhumans that is always headed by the appearance of the eternal Jew. While the subhuman looks human, it is merely a partial human being. Whereas the subhuman is actually below the animals on the spiritual and psychological scale. Yet Himmler still says that the subhuman is crafted by nature, which makes one wonder how nature could have crafted something unnatural. On such account, it would seem difficult to say that the subhuman goes against nature because it is a product of nature. Perhaps Himmler means that nature has made a mistake, but an admission like that would threaten any argument that appeals to nature as a standard. Now, it should be clear there isn't any argument in what Himmler says as to why some beings are subhuman, nor would one simply by this description have any idea which apparent human beings or human-looking beings are actually not human. You would need to know in advance which quasi-people are being described from centuries-old descriptions of Jews and homosexuals, among others. Hannah Arendt reminds us of what she calls the banality of evil, the fact that badness and evil are often pursued without much thought. That charge is related to the trial of Adolf Eichmann, which Arendt went to Jerusalem to see for herself. What astounded her was that Eichmann, rather than appear as some great criminal mastermind, seemed to have only wanted to perform his duties well. He was in charge of the logistics of relocating non-people to the camps. As he said at the trial, he didn't himself murder anyone. He was just doing his job, and he wanted to make sure that he did it well and didn't get fired. But his job was infinitely helped by being able to think of homosexuals and Jews and all of the other people as non-people. When we demonize our enemy, one result is that we normally assume that any kind of response is acceptable because the person is so bad as to deserve every injurious term we can throw at him. Further, demonization fans the flames of self-righteousness. Indeed, it is often a short, though illogical, step to assume that since one is speaking on behalf of God, one must oneself be righteous. Let me turn here to an article by Jennifer Valentino de Vries and Steve Etter titled 
for Trump's backers in Congress, devil terms help rally voters. This appeared in the New York Times about a month ago. They lead with an example of a tweet sent by Ronnie Jackson, a representative for the 13th District of Texas. Here's what Jackson writes. Make no mistake about it, the most radical anti-American leftists in Congress are in control. If you have a Democrat representing you, you must demand that they stand up to the American last Marxists that are radically and systematically destroying our country. I take it that we could agree that these are strong and potentially stirring words. But it soon becomes apparent that they are more than just words. Can you name for me any politician in the United States who seriously claims to be a Marxist? Are there really any Democrats who have said that they want America to be last? Bear in mind that last is a whole lot different from being second or third or something like that. Finally, what could it mean to destroy a country? There isn't any clue here as to why and how such people would be so bad. But there also isn't any information offered to support or define the vague devil terms. Now here I think it's helpful to quote Jennifer Mursica, who is a professor in the history of rhetoric at Texas A&M University. She's not specifically talking about the tweet we examined, but her comment is perfectly apt, namely, they're using what are called devil terms, things that are so unquestionably bad that you can't have a debate about them. But simply examining the claims makes it clear that they are flimsy at best. Jackson talks about Democrats as, quote, the most radical anti-American leftists. How anyone could have the authority to speak of anything as the most radical seems really questionable. How much experience of radicality do you need to have in order to make such a claim. Indeed, the very nature of radicality is that it goes beyond things before. Of course, in itself, radicality is neither good nor bad. The problem is that such people are, in this case, leftists. Again, I'm assuming that this language is basically code for bad people. As to the claim that such people are destroying the country, we would need a lot more information to know whether such a claim is meaningful. Growing up in the evangelical world, I heard such language pretty frequently. It was almost a kind of currency. The more you talked down the other side, the better your own side looked. Here's another example, this one from Representative Mo Brooks, who says, Never have I feared so much for America's future. American-hating socialists seek to upend the American way of life based on freedom and liberty and replace it with dictatorial government that controls every aspect of our lives. Now, let's start with that last statement. You may have heard that recently in China, they have had a policy of zero covid you may have also noted that Chinese citizens have begun to protest these COVID restrictions, and more recently, even protests the Communist Party. 
One thing this tells us is the following. Even if some government, say the U.S. government, wished to become purely dictatorial, it could never control every aspect of our lives. But having made the basic factual point, let's go back to the claim that American-eating socialists seek to upend the American way of life based on freedom and liberty. What evidence is there for this claim? How does Mr. Brooks think that he knows the motivations of American-hating socialists? And then there is the typical charge socialist that is thrown around without much thought about what it means. I do intend to have at least one episode devoted to socialism, since it's such a slippery word. For now, the most obvious thing to say is that the early Christians practiced socialism as described in the second chapter of the book of Acts, namely... No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. One of the difficulties in talking about socialism is that almost all of us live in places that are socialized in some way. Americans love to talk about their free market, and I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of my students had little to no understanding what the term socialist actually means. Part of that has to do with the fact that the U.S. has often defined itself in contrast to its perceived enemies, which led to the idea of something like the American way of life that was seen as opposed to and significantly different from and far better than the Soviet Union way of life. The difficulty, then, is that students assume that the entire system of either the United States or the Soviet Union is either capitalist or communist. When we finally come to read Marx in my historically-oriented introductory philosophy course, I instruct students to look at the list of demands appended to the Communist Manifesto. Among the things the Manifesto calls for are things like a graduated income tax and free education. Most societies have these today, though with important differences. I did my master's and doctorate in Belgium and then returned there to teach later in my career, During my master's degree, I think I paid about $225 a year in tuition uh, back in those days when there were still Belgian francs and not euros. Uh, When I became a doctoral student, that turned out to be about $15 a year. Obviously, in many countries, higher education is extremely expensive and thus not available to all. One way of differentiating between systems, then, is how much education they cover. In the United States, education through high school is free to the students because it's paid for by taxes. Belgium simply extends those educational benefits, which are also paid through taxes, on the way through college and graduate school. Or if we take a different approach, in the United States, retired people receive funding from Social Security. The funding isn't particularly generous, and it's not designed to be. The IRS will tell you that it's simply meant to supplement what you've already saved. In contrast, people who retire in Belgium receive a pension that approximates what they made while they worked. Providing education and retirement are, of course, truly socialistic goals, because, of course, they benefit the entire community. Perhaps a brief contrast would help here. In its strongest form, communism is about the collective ownership of all property and all means of production. 
But there are so many lesser forms of something like socialism or even communism. Depending on the country in which you live, the utilities that provide electricity and heat may or may not be owned by the local government, but they are always going to be controlled by the government. If you own a house, you almost assuredly have insurance, which of course is itself a form of socialism. The idea of fire insurance is simple. We don't know whose house is going to burn, burn down, but if we pool all of our money, then we'll all be covered. While insurance is normally organized through a company, many organizations are, in effect, self-insured, at least for the health insurance of their employees. That means that everyone pays into a common pot and then makes claims according to needs. Now, just to clarify, communism and socialism are not the same things. However, communism presumes socialism. It doesn't work the other way around. The difficulty of talking about either socialism or communism, though, is that for many decades the U.S., along with its allies, saw itself as the contrast to communism and thought of communism as evil. But now we're back to the problem mentioned by Professor Merkaika, namely that communism is itself a devil term for most Americans, and, of course, no one wants to be seen defending it. But, of course, precisely because it is such a charged word, it's also rarely defined. Now, in this article that I've been taking a look at, the authors focus on what they consider and present as the two sides of Representative Mary Miller. On the one hand, she's described as embodying the, and here I'm quoting, Midwestern values of faith, family, and freedom. End of quote. Despite having lived in the Midwest, um, by the way, this is roughly the central bit of the U.S., so it's a bit more to the right than it is to the left. Despite the fact that I've lived in the Midwest, I've never heard anyone call these Midwestern values, though I, I don't have any question about that. If, if, that, if people want to say that they are, that's okay. The article also mentions the voiceover of a video clip of Ms. Miller um, and the voiceover says, hard work, using God-given talent, and loving each other well. Again, not much to complain about there. But the authors of the article note that she has an entirely different side to that wholesome image. They point out that she routinely accuses Democrats and liberals of being evil communists beholden to China who want to destroy America and its culture. But then... What are we to make of the point Ms. Miller makes about loving each other well? Perhaps there is some love being shown in helping Democrats to see how misguided they are, but it's hard to see how calling them evil is going to help in any meaningful, useful way. But that's not the whole story. Ms. Miller claims that President Biden wants to flood our country with terrorists, fentanyl, child traffickers, and the MS-13 gang. By the way, that's a quote. It's from one of her tweets. How Ms. Miller thinks she knows Biden's plan is, of course, unexplained. Um, but it's such a weird combination of things that it begs for an explanation. Why, for instance, would the president of a country desire that his or her country be invaded by terrorists? If you're the person in charge, 
terrorists will be one of your worst fears. So why would you want to import them? Again, if we take what she says literally, then we realize that what she says doesn't comport with reality. The Times article goes into considerable depth on the use of devil terms. The authors and their collaborators examined millions of tweets as well as many thousands of newsletters, Facebook ads, and statements from the congressional record. Their analysis concludes that House representatives who objected to Biden being certified as president used such terms about 55% more than Republicans who did not object and nearly triple the rate of Democrats. Those who objected to Biden being certified used the term socialist in 1,800 tweets, which was about twice that of non-objectors. They conclude that, and I'm, I'm uh, quoting, Republicans on average use divisive words and phrases more than twice as often as Democrats in tweets and six times as often in emails to constituents. Specifically, they said that Ms. Pelosi is a favorite target of Republicans. Objectors in the current term mentioned her on Twitter more than abortion and crime, two of their other frequently used words. Party leaders typically attract criticism, but Democrats posted about Mr. McCarthy, the Republican leader, about 1,100 times, while objectors tweeted about Ms. Pelosi more than 6,000 times. If you're thinking, well, it's the New York Times, of course they think this, then it's helpful to mention that we do have a pretty good idea of which words are divisive and which aren't. Among the research the authors did was to examine the congressional record, which they describe as dominated by stately and tedious speeches from the House floor. According to their count, and here I'm quoting, Republicans have more than quadrupled their use of divisive rhetoric since the early 2010s in the congressional record. The authors write, although a demonizing communication style has been in use for years among media personalities and the occasional firebrand lawmaker, Mr. Trump popularized it among elite politicians. His party has adopted these strategies as well because they work. In case you're wondering when I was planning on mentioning the other side, here it comes. MSNBC declares all Republicans evil and a threat to democracy. Pundit says, we are at war. Those are just the headlines. Here's what the host, Tiffany Cross, had to say. Obviously, Republicans are, I think, the biggest threat to democracy. We don't separate right-wing extremists and the Republican Party anymore. The reason she gives is that, quote, mainstream establishment Republicans are echoing these calls for violence, all but threatening it. And so Cross believes that a civil war has, in her words, already begun. In speaking about the Republican Party on Cross's show, Roland Martin says the following, We are at war with these people. These folks are evil. And then further, they have allowed evil into their house with Donald Trump. He has now dominated the party. This evil is spreading. And when you are in a war footing, you have to respond accordingly. 
when the enemy is coming at you, you can't fall down. You can't break down. This means war. Martin further asserted that, quote, it's about time President Joe Biden decided to get tough. It's about time his advisors stop being weak and stop being impotent and not fighting back. You keep hitting. You keep pounding. Martin considers conservatives to be, and again I'm quoting, crazy, deranged folks who want to import evil in every facet of our society. Okay, so where does one go from here? Earlier I mentioned that Jesus talks about loving the enemy. I think most people assume that Jesus is talking about something that would be nice maybe someday. Yeah, let's hope for being able to love our enemies. Here, here, good idea. But I'm interested in what that might mean now. Consider this statement. The left tells our children a hopeless message that they do not come from God, they are not born for any purpose, and they cannot obtain salvation. That comes from sweet Ms. Miller. But it's hard to see how any of this could even be remotely true. First, while we may not even be able to agree as to exactly who constitutes the left, I think Ms. Miller is including everyone who isn't, I guess, on the right. I guess that would mean that all folks other than those on the right are the kind of people that Ms. Miller claims they are. But that doesn't seem very likely. As far as I can tell, there are religious folk on the left as well as on the right. Ms. Miller claims that the left is both anti-Christian and anti-American, but again, these are just baseless claims. And it actually gets worse. Uh, Ms. Miller claims, quote, we're at war for the heart and soul of our country. Christ is on our side and we will prevail. But using such language comes with an enormous price. We are effectively shutting down all forms of communication when we use devil terms. How is it possible to start a conversation with someone who has just accused you of being in league with the devil? But the further price to pay is often physical violence. At least in Western society, saying that someone is working with the devil effectively writes someone off as a non-person. If you believe that you are God's representative of earth, though, you can justify just about anything. I suspect that is an important piece in the puzzle of understanding why someone like Matt Walsh sounds so convinced of his own rightness. Earlier I mentioned that Michelle Goldberg had written about Walsh in the wake of the mass shooting at Club Q. Goldberg writes the following. The Daily Wire's Matt Walsh described drag events involving kids as a cancer and wrote that just like cancer, stopping it is not a gentle or painless process. Goldberg's point is that Walsh's words, and by the way, she mentions other people too, can easily lead to violence. As a philosopher, of course, I'm always skeptical about claims that have to do with causality. The problem is it's very difficult to prove in any meaningful way that Walsh's rhetoric provided the reason for the shooter. However, violent rhetoric that continues over time, usually does result in actual physical violence. 
With that point in mind, Goldberg says the following. People who hurl baseless accusations of child abuse are not engaged in a debate. Their project is one of demonization in the service of domination. They've been screaming that drag events, like the brunch that should have happened at Club Q on Sunday, are part of a monstrous plot to prey on children. They don't get to duck responsibility if a sick man with a gun took them seriously. Remember that stuff Mr. Walsh said about suing for defamation? He may not actually sue, but he has a rather harsh response to Michelle Goldberg. He opens his next episode with the charge uh, about the media blaming him for the shooting of Club Q. He makes the point that someone who had been bashing windows at a gay bar in Hell's Kitchen had turned out to be gay. Hmm. I think the logic has to go like this. Since the suspect is gay, this couldn't be a hate crime. Uh, the problem with that is that logic doesn't actually work. It's, in fact, most likely the other way around. Walsh says that the other gays have attacked gay bars, and that's completely true. But you have to ask why. Why do gay men and lesbians have a tendency to hate themselves? Because that's what the culture teaches them that they should hate themselves. One of the things I've seen over and over with college students who are gay or queer is that they often hate themselves, at least in evangelicalism. While no one actually says you should die, that often seems to be the best way out of being gay. Walsh rightly points out that the media went very quickly to labeling the the Club Q shooting a hate crime. His view, of course, is that it's not a hate crime. But that view is only possible if we can believe that people don't ever hate themselves. Turns out, self-hatred is pretty common. Walsh's take on the media is that somehow the media set up the situation so it would appear to be a hate crime. He writes, they, the left liberals, never cared about the victims. They're happy that this happened. Their only regret is that more didn't die to make this an even bigger story. The only thing that matters is that this event gives them an opportunity to slander and defame their enemies like me. Now, from a purely performative point of view, it is hard to imagine Walsh using any harsher language about those who slander and defame their enemies. But isn't what Walsh saying slander? He says, the only thing that matters is that this event gives them an opportunity to slander and defame their enemies. Yet how exactly does Walsh think he is able to read the minds of all the people he hates? Is he simply projecting his own motives onto his enemies? With that question, we come to an end of this podcast. We'll have to leave it open for the time being. Thank you for joining me here on On Becoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, your host. <laughs>